0: Let me invite you uh, now to open your Bibles uh, with me to John chapter 20. As we've read uh, Luke's account of the resurrection, I'd like to read it from John's uh, inspired version. So John chapter 20, and I'll begin by reading the first uh, 18 verses and then the two last verses of this chapter. And as I'm reading the inspired Word of God, let me encourage you to give careful attention to the reading of god's holy word john chapter 20 starting in verse 1 now on the first day of the week mary magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb remember the angels had come and actually removed the the stone So she ran and came to Simon Peter and said to the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid Him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, that would be John, And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' And she said to them, "'Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid Him.' And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that He had said these things to her. Well, may God bless the reading of His Word. And now the last two verses. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that believing you may have life in His name. Again, may God bless the reading of His word. Well, as we talk about the resurrection of Christ, there's two large bits of evidence that are found in this passage of John chapter 20. One, of course, is the empty tomb where both Mary and Peter and John go to the tomb. They look inside and they don't see a body. All they see are the the grave clothes that He was wrapped in. So the tomb is empty. And then later on, we have all these eyewitnesses of people that actually saw the risen Lord. Those are the two main evidences that this particular passage gives to us. When you talk about the empty tomb, obviously skeptics uh, undermine that. And they have different uh, rationales or reasons for not believing that the tomb was really empty. Uh, Some of them say, well, you know, the the women uh, actually went to the wrong tomb. The problem with that particular uh, theory is that the women saw where Jesus had been buried. They actually went with Joseph of Arimathea who actually put Jesus into His own tomb that He had carved out of the rock. They were there. So they actually saw it. So the likelihood that they got lost seemed somewhat unlikely. Also, there would have been the Roman soldiers that were positioned there as of the Sabbath day on Saturday So that would have been a telltale sign that they were at the right tomb. And also, if they had really gotten lost, well, Joseph of Arimathea, he was the one who carved the tomb out. He could have clarified easily to them, oh, you went to the wrong... Here's the right place. This is where where we took him, remember? So the idea that they went to the wrong tomb uh, is not very plausible. Others say, well, it was... uh, Christ really didn't die. He revived later on. And this is called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. When they buried Him, the coolness of the tomb eventually revived Him and He, and he came out kind of on His own. But again, the idea of a man who's been crucified with the nails in His wrists, driven into His feet, the spear in His side, all the evidence of the Roman... Soldiers who were experts at killing and experts at identifying death. That's why they didn't even break Jesus' bones before they took Him down because they they, who were experts in this field could clearly see He was dead even after they stabbed Him with the spear. To imagine that someone went through all that, the scourging that He endured, having the nails pierced into His feet, and then suddenly be walking around As if he's 100% healthy like the account gives to us. This is not a man who has never died but just swooned. He just came alive again. That's hard to believe as well. And then you have the stolen body view. Well, it was empty because, well, the disciples stole the body. And this was the, the fake news of the day. This was the fake news of the chief priests who paid the guards, the Roman guards, to bribe them to say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, if you think about that, that particular story would have been a death sentence to the Roman soldiers because they were basically assigned to guard the tomb. And if they failed in their job or fell asleep, and someone actually came in and and stole the body out from under their noses, then they basically would would forfeit their lives. So the idea that the the disciples could have somehow snuck in and stole the body seems a bit far-fetched as well. Besides that, the disciples were in no mental condition to steal the body of our Lord. When Christ was arrested the night before, they were terrified. They scattered, you remember. They were nowhere to be found. Only John followed Jesus into Caiaphas' courtyard. And Peter came later where he eventually denied the Lord he was so scared. And to imagine that these disciples who are totally scared and disillusioned because their Messiah now has been put to death and crucified, how they could have originated some plan to sneak in and steal the body seems again hard to, to, uh, to grasp. The Roman guard, uh, when they were assigned on the Sabbath day on Saturday, they were entrusted with, with the responsibility to guard the tomb. And what they would have done, Jesus was put in there around dusk on Friday evening. And when Saturday the Roman guard comes, they would have rolled away the stone, verified his body inside, rolled the stone back, and then they sealed it with a Roman seal. So the body was in there when when they got there. Uh, They would not have just put the seal on there without verifying it because their lives basically are on the line. Their job, if they violated that trust, then they would probably forfeit their own lives. And it just seems illogical, doesn't it, to think that These disciples would they would have had to break the Sabbath themselves to carry the body off. That was that was a violation of the Sabbath. They wouldn't even have done that if it was even possible for them to do so. But then isn't it illogical to think that these guys stole the body and yet they went out proclaiming to everybody Jesus rose from the dead, and all of them, without exception, was willing to suffer tremendously to be tortured. And to die for what they knew was a lie? People don't die for a myth that they invent. Not one of the disciples at the end of his life facing torture or execution or Peter being crucified upside down said, hey guys, I was just kidding. You know, We really made up this whole story. None of them. Because they didn't steal a body. So you have the empty tomb of Christ. Uh, that uh, certainly speaks strongly to His bodily resurrection. But in addition to that, of course, you have all these witnesses. And I love Mary at the end of John 20. Uh, Jesus has to say to her in verse 17, after He reveals Himself to her, He has to say, Stop clinging to me. She so loved the Lord. You remember Mary, Mary Magdalene here. She was the first one. Ladies, you were blessed to be the very first gender to see the risen Lord. And Mary Magdalene, she was the one who had been possessed by seven demons. She was the one who had been tormented by being demon-possessed. And yet Christ rescued her and set her free. She had an incredible love for Christ. And when she finally saw him for who he was. She ran and embraced him and clung to him so that Jesus had to say, Woman, stop clinging to me. You know, I'm going to be around for a little while longer. But uh, she cried out in verse 18 when she came back to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Was she lying? Was she deceived? I don't think so. The Bible teaches that there are over ten different resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's to individuals, like here to Mary. Uh, The New Testament also says that He revealed Himself individually to Peter and James, his half-brother, not the Apostle James, but his half-brother. And then, of course, later on to Saul on the road to Damascus. And other times He appeared to groups, Remember, at the end of Easter Sunday, he appeared to the ten disciples. Judas was not there. Thomas was not there, remember? Thomas the doubter. And then a week later, he appeared to all eleven of the disciples. And then later on at the Sea of Galilee, he appeared to seven of the eleven disciples. And Paul says at one point he appeared to over 500 at one time. Now what these appearances argue is that this was not a hallucination. You don't get mass hallucinations like this on, on this level. For all of them to see exactly the same image. For 500 of them all to see Christ at the same time in the same place. Uh, Again, this uh, this is a stretch to try to write it off as some kind of hallucination. In addition to that, of course, the apostles who saw the Lord were absolutely changed and transformed in their life. Remember later on, Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who hated Christ and hated the church and was persecuting Christians, on his road to Damascus, to arrest more Christians and haul them back to Jerusalem, put them in jail, and and hopefully put them to death, was miraculously uh, converted by Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus. And obviously, he was not in any frame of mind looking to want to become a Christian. He despised Christians. He hated them. And the only way to attribute such a radical transformation suddenly taking place... Was that he actually saw what he saw, and Jesus actually visited him in a miraculous way. Later on, Saul would endure the Jewish 39 lashes five times. He would be beaten with rods three times, he would be stoned with rocks and boulders once. This is a man who believed what he saw. And he saw what he saw. And it changed his life. The power of these witnesses is something that is hard to explain away. All of these were willing to die for Jesus. And most of them did. Maybe John uh, the Apostle was an exception. But these are men who were so transformed they were willing to die for the sake of love for Christ and love for the Gospel. Now, that in and of itself may not convince people because someone may say, well, you got other people that are willing to die for their faith. What about these Muslim fanatics? And I'm probably, many of y'all have already seen this morning the sad news in Sri Lanka at uh, some hotels and churches where they were celebrating Easter uh, services. Uh, there were eight bomb explosions that happened earlier this morning over there. Sri Lanka is uh, the island off the southern coast of India. And uh, over 160 people were killed. The number will probably grow. There are two of them who were suicide bombers. You say, well, Muslims, they'll die for their faith. It's totally different. Totally different. The difference is that these Muslim fanatics are under the demonic power of Satan. Anybody that would go out and commit a bombing by suicide, their minds are controlled by Satan. There's no other way really to explain it. They are doing an incredible evil. They're not, they're not sacrificing their life in the name of love. They're sacrificing their life in the name of hate. That's totally different. They are bewitched by a lie and a deception that if they go through this dastardly, evil, wicked deed that somehow they'll earn their right to go to heaven and have their 70 virgins or whatever it is. But Satan can counterfeit godly devotion and zeal with his own brand of blind and wicked zeal. And that's what you see among these Muslim fanatics. It's not the same. The disciples were transformed They were willing to die for Christ out of love for Christ and appreciating the love that Christ has for them. The salvation, the forgiveness of sins, drives them to give themselves body and soul for the cause of Christ. Totally unlike what you see in the Islamic world. Well, you have the empty tomb, you have witnesses. And these are two powerful arguments that Jesus is alive and that he is alive today. It's interesting that the resurrection of Christ is not something new in the Bible. We don't just read of it uh, in the New Testament. You find shadows of it back in the Old Testament. You find certain Old Testament prophecies and certain Old Testament types or events that prefigure the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. Remember when the Israelites were jealous of the authority of Moses and Aaron? Remember they were brothers with their sister Miriam. And they were jealous that Aaron and, and Moses were the leaders. And so they were contending with Aaron being the high priest. And so Moses told the twelve tribes each bring a a dead stick, a rod, scribe your name on it, and he put it before the tabernacle of God. Next morning they went in there and the rod of Levi miraculously budded And put forth ripe almonds and and blossoms. So it was a miracle. But what God showed through that, that He had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. It was a miracle of death unto life that indicated God's chosen high priest. How God would set apart His new covenant high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ in raising him from the dead. So you see the picture there is found even back in the Old Testament. How about Jonah in the belly of the great fish? And then you have prophecies like Second Samuel seven, the great Davidic covenant that God gave to, to David. And he told David that I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice He says, I will raise up. And that particular word raise up is actually used at least once in the Old Testament for a bodily resurrection from the dead. It's a guy who died and they threw his dead body on the inside the tomb where Elisha's body was and he miraculously came alive. And here God is promising to David, I will raise up, same word, your descendant, ultimately referring to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that implies, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is not a normal man. We don't live forever. This implies someone, a son of David, a future son of David, who will be raised up, which is language that would fit with bodily resurrection. And He will reign on a throne forever. So He must be glorified. He must be God on His throne. God the Son. So you can even see that veiled all the way back in God's covenant with David. And then David wrote Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul of shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And David was writing prophetically of what would be true of his son, the son of David, Jesus Christ, who would not ultimately undergo the decay of death because he'd be raised from the dead on the third day. The New Testament quotes Psalm 16, verse 10 in a number of places supporting the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah 53. It's another wonderful passage. At the end of that, which we understand is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, not the nation of Israel. But he says, after being crushed and put to grief by offering himself as a guilt offering. And this we understand to refer to Christ. So he's going to be crushed. He's going to be put to grief. He's going to offer himself as a guilt offering, which means he's going to be sacrificed and put to death. And then right after that, the prophecy goes on to say, he will see his offspring... And prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How do you do that? How does someone go through all that suffering and grief and offers himself as a sacrifice and dies and then he will see his offspring and his days will be prolonged? It implies a resurrection. Not explicitly stated, but it certainly seems to be implied there. And then you have the great picture of Abraham taking his son Isaac up on the mountain of Moriah to sacrifice his son. So God told him to do. So Isaac is carrying the wood like Christ carried his cross. Isaac is carrying the wood up to that place. And Abraham makes the altar. He stretches out Isaac. He pulls up his knife. And he's just about ready to plunge it into his son and sacrifice his son because that's what God told him to do. He was committed to sacrificing his son. And we know why he didn't. Because God stopped him and said, Abraham, don't sacrifice your son. I've provided a substitute, a ram. You can sacrifice the ram in the place of Isaac. So he went up with the death sentence on him. Almost died, but he came back fully alive. And that's a picture, if you will, of what God the Father would do in sending His only begotten Son to carry His wood up to the hill of sacrifice and to lay down His life. only the big difference is the Father did not withhold His hand from striking His Son. He crucified him. He had him put to death because it was necessary for our sins to be paid by a substitute. So Christ is the true Isaac. He also fulfills the, the ram substitute idea because He had to die for us and pay the penalty for our sins. Those are some of the Old Testament ways that prefigure and and. and type form, picture form, and in prophecies point forward to the glory of the resurrection of the Son of God. Some of the results of the resurrection of Christ are, are interesting to think about briefly. Uh, because Jesus died and rose again on the third day, everything that Jesus said would happen did happen. It was all true. Remember, repeatedly Jesus had told His disciples that He was going to go to Jerusalem, that He would be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, that He would be condemned to death, that He would be handed over to the Gentiles to mock Him and scourge Him and crucify Him. And on the third day, He would be raised up from the dead. Matthew 20. Just one of many places. He wouldn't just be resuscitated, but He would be raised up from the dead. That's what He said would happen to Him. And all of that happened exactly as Jesus prophesied that it would. So His resurrection obviously confirms the truthfulness of everything He said was going to happen to Him. And not only that, His resurrection really confirms that all of His claims were true. For someone to rise from the dead in glory, not just be temporarily resuscitated like Lazarus or the widow's son or someone like that, who went on and later on died again, but he was raised in glory, resurrection glory. And because of that, everything that Jesus claimed about himself was true. For example, through all four gospels, he claimed to be the Son of Man. Matter of fact, Uh, That was his favorite self-designation of himself. He called himself the Son of Man, I think, about 80 times in all four Gospels. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in that wonderful prophecy of Daniel, the Son of Man ascends up to the Ancient of Days and receives a dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all the nations will serve Him. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Well, that implies that the Son of Man, whoever that is, He is man, no doubt about it, but He's more than a man because He's ascending up to the right hand of God Almighty. He is receiving dominion over all the nations who will come and bow before Him and serve Him and He has an everlasting kingdom, He must be God as well. He's the Son of God. So the Son of Man is a title of humanity and also a title of deity. Clearly in Daniel 7, no earthly creature would ever be exalted to that place at the Father's right hand if He were not clearly divine Himself. Jesus also referred himself as the one and only Son of God. Son of man, Son of God. Which again is a clear mark that he's more than a man. He claims to be God. That's why the the Jews hated him so much and wanted to kill him repeatedly. Because in in calling God his own Father, for example in John 5.18, they clearly understood that he was making himself out to be equal with God. And they thought that was blasphemy. And so they tried to kill him on numerous occasions throughout his earthly ministry. But he claimed to be the Son of God. And his ministry of teaching and healing and miracles all confirms that who he claimed to be, that's exactly who he was. Many of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming messiahs that he would teach and, and, and uh You know, let the captives go free, and He would heal the the lame and the blind. And Christ did all that, showing He was the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. But here's another one. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. And because He rose from the dead, that confirms that He is able to do what He said He could do. And who can forgive sin, by the way? Can you forgive anybody's sin? I mean, ultimately pay the debt for their sin. Well, none of us can do that. Only God can forgive sin. That clearly came over. That's why again, the Jews when they heard Jesus say to the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, you know, your sins are forgiven. They said, "That's, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins. But God, who does this man think that He is? Well, He claimed to be able to forgive sin. And in effect, that's saying He was claiming to be the Son of God. Even later on, right before His crucifixion, when He was uh, eating the last Passover with His disciples, He took the bread and He took the cup and He used them as symbols of His body and His blood. Remember of His blood, He said, this is the blood of My covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what He claimed. And His resurrection proves that that's exactly what happened. He also claimed to be the only way to the Father. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive and only way to heaven, to God the Father. Uh, he claimed that he, there, there were no other. No other religion. No other religious leader. He was the one and only way. Now, for Jesus to make that claim, and I think the resurrection confirms that he's absolutely true, but for Jesus to make that claim, there's only really three ways you can respond to what Jesus said about himself. Josh McDowell lays this out very well in one of his books. He says Jesus was either a liar, he claimed to be the only way to God the Father, but he really wasn't, and he knew he wasn't, so he was just lying. So if he is a liar, who would want to follow a liar? We certainly wouldn't want to. Or he was a lunatic. He claimed to be the only way to heaven and actually thought he was the only way to heaven, but he really wasn't the only way to heaven. He was just self-deceived. He'd be a lunatic. Well, who would want to follow a lunatic? Well, we certainly wouldn't want to. Or the third option, he's Lord. He claimed to be the only way to God the Father. He is the only way to God the Father so that we must bow before Him as Lord. And His resurrection confirms that He is Lord. Because there's no other religious leader. Check Him out. There's no other religious leader that rose from the dead like Jesus Christ did. You see, Christ is the only way for... Salvation because he's our Passover lamb. It's what's so beautiful about the Passover in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. Because what happened to the Passover lamb? Well, God had pronounced a, a curse, the, the tenth plague, on, on both the Israelites and the Egyptians that their firstborn son would die. But God, in mercy, provided for Israel a Passover lamb. So they'd take a little lamb, one year old, had to be a male, without spot or blemish. And they would sacrifice that lamb and they would take the blood. They would put it on the top of the door and on the two sides. Kind of an interesting outline of the cross. And whoever did that, that little lamb's death would pay the price for the firstborn. So the firstborn would be freed Because a substitute died in his place. And the avenging angel of death would come up to the door, he would see the blood, and he would pass it by. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. It's interesting on Friday afternoon when Jesus was crucified, that's exactly the same time at the temple when those little Passover lambs are being slain by the hundreds and the thousands. And Jesus was outside the camp outside the city being crucified on a cross while all those other Passover lambs inside the temple were being slain. But what He did is He came to die for His firstborn, for His church, that He would bear the curse of death that we deserve because of our sin. But He died in our place. And we apply the blood to our lives as we come in simple repentance and belief in Jesus and receive Him as our Lord and Savior, our Passover Lamb, who alone can save sinners because He's the only way to God the Father. Jesus offers a free gift. You can't be good enough to earn it. We are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good, no, not one. We will never, I will never go to heaven if it's based on me being good because I'm a sinner and I've broken the commandments of God. Salvation is a free gift. Christ's righteousness, He's the one that perfectly kept the law of God. It's His righteousness given to me that is my hope of heaven, not me being good. And so we have to humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin and receive the free gift of everlasting life from Jesus Christ. Because again, He's the only one who can save us from our sin. So what He said about that is true. The resurrection, we believe, confirm it. And also confirms that He's now exalted to the Father's right hand on the throne. You say, well, how is... How is that confirmed by the resurrection? How do we know that He's now exalted at the Father's right hand? Well, He said He would be. But also, the the evidence, the proof of Him being at the Father's right hand, He said, is when I get there in heaven and I'm with my Father, then I will send you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 50 days later is when we have Pentecost, when Jesus, who is now in heaven, on His throne in glory, sends the Holy Spirit down as proof positive that He had safely arrived in glory in heaven. It would be like if uh, Patty and I went to a Paris, France to see the Eiffel Tower. No point in seeing the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral in light of the tragedy that has happened there. But say we're going to go there to see the Eiffel Tower... And I tell you that when I get there, we will send you a postcard and let you know that we made it there. And so uh, a few days go by. We've left town. You wonder. Well, I wonder if they made it to uh, to Paris or not. So you can go over to my house, knock on the door. If you had a key, you could go inside. It's empty. It's an empty house. We're not there. Clearly not there. We're somewhere, but we're not there. And then a few days later, you get a postcard in the mail. And it's a selfie that we took in front of the Eiffel Tower. And we take it to a shop and we have it turned into a postcard. And we address it to you. And there's a return or, or a postmark on there stating Paris, France from that particular day. And you say, well, I guess sure enough, they made it there. Here's proof. In a very similar way, that's what Jesus said would happen. That when He was in heaven with His Father, He would send us more than a postcard. He would send us the Holy Spirit. And that was fulfilled again on the day of Pentecost. Well, Christ, because He is risen and is at the Father's right hand, is a source of all of our blessings. He's praying for us now. He's a source of our spiritual life and grace. We can't live the Christian life on our own. It's impossible. Uh, we don't have the, the spiritual ability. We need Christ to live His life through us. That's why Paul could say that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And Paul could say in Romans 6, as Christ was raised from the dead, so we walk in His life. So Christ now is only the reason why you and I don't fall away from Christ like this and abandon the faith and, and go join a false cult. It's because of the life of Christ, the grace of Christ, that is living within our soul. If you've ever seen the old movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, kind of one of those old ancient classic movies, but you see those first uh, deep sea divers and they're kind of like they're in a spacesuit, and they've got a big helmet in there and there's a hose that goes from their helmet all the way up to the boat on the surface and they're pumping down all this air into them without which they would, they would die in minutes. They're in the death zone down there. And in a similar way, we're living kind of in a death zone in this old world where Satan is the God, little g of this world. We live around people of, of, that are hostile to our faith in many ways. But Christ from heaven continues to pump down His grace through the Holy Spirit, living His life in us. And that's the only reason why we can walk uh, the Christian life. Not that we're sinless. We still sin. We still struggle with the flesh. But the progress that we made is all due to His life and His grace within us. Another, just kind of some quick wrapping up, some random thoughts. His bodily resurrection is a guarantee of our future resurrection. His resurrection was called the first fruits, which means there's a great harvest to come. So we look forward to the resurrection of our bodies and the proof that that's going to happen is that it's already happened to Jesus. And Philippians says that He will transform our humble body into conformity with the body of His glory by the power that He has to subject all things to Himself. And finally, He will finally come, because He's raised from the dead, because He's sitting at the Father's right hand, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said in John 5, not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to His Son. And when Christ comes back, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, Christ will separate the sheep from the goats. Those who have come to Him in repentance and faith for salvation, they will inherit eternal glory. And the goats who have always turned away from Christ and rejected Christ will be cast into everlasting punishment. As we wrap up, we're about to uh, close this service with a baptism. I want to just remind you that the two church ordinances that we celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism both speak symbolically and remind us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now how does that happen in the Lord's Supper? Well we take the bread and the cup and it obviously reminds us of Christ's body and blood so the cross is mainly in view in the Lord's Supper but Paul tells us that when we partake of the Lord's Supper we proclaim his death until what? until He comes. So it's implied that He is risen, that He's in heaven, and one day He will come back. So all of that is implied in uh, the Lord's Supper, which we take every month here. But also Christian baptism. Because you see, when Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again, He did it as our substitute. He did it for us. So that when He died... We really died with Him. When He was buried, we were kind of buried with Him. When He rose again on the third day, we arose with Him symbolically. We were in Him. He was representing us. So that when we immerse in baptism, they go through and kind of reenact this symbolism through their own death. They are immersed under the waters of baptism. They're buried. And then they rise up in newness of life Because we believe not only did it happen to Jesus, but spiritually it has happened to us. And we look forward to that future bodily day of resurrection yet to come. So at this time, I think we're going to sing a a final hymn. And uh, we have two candidates for baptism, Lila Ahmed and Grace Palmer. And uh, as we sing the hymn, you can be released and go back and and, uh, get prepared for the baptismal service. And, uh, and then we'll come out and, and uh, quickly do that. So let me uh, close this time in a word of prayer and then we'll uh, close with a hymn. Father, again, we just want to thank You for the opportunity that we have to come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to rejoice in the free gift of forgiveness and everlasting life that only Jesus can give And Jesus promised to give it to everyone who comes in humble faith and believes in Him as Lord and Savior and receives that free gift of salvation and everlasting life. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You're alive today. We thank You that You're looking down upon us from heaven even today. That You're always with us. You've promised You will never leave us. And what a glorious, joyful hope that is. And so we want to praise You and rejoice in Your resurrection today. For we ask it in Your name. Amen.